Jesus is in. Jesus is, it seems like, he's, he's always in the news. He's always interesting to people, no matter if they grew up in the church or not. About once every 15 years, who does Time Magazine give the Person of the Year Award to? To Jesus. Jesus is infinitely relatable, no matter if you are here for the first time in your life, come to church after many years of being away, or if you're um, a regular with us. Jesus is infinitely relatable. Everybody knows this, even if you're not a Christian. And what Luke is trying to do in chapter 27 is he spends an entire chapter, a very, very long chapter of actually a very, very long book, giving a very detailed account of what happened to Paul before he was shipwrecked on his way to Rome. Why does Luke spend so much time talking about a voyage at sea? Because Luke is trying to help you recognize that there's a connection between Paul's life and Jesus' life, just like you can relate to Jesus. Jesus suffered. He was misunderstood by friends. He loved and he cared very deeply. You love and you care very deeply. I love and I care very deeply. Like, I can relate to a lot of the things that Jesus experienced. Can't you? I mean, Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. Do you know what that's like? And Paul is trying to show us at the very end of Acts a picture of how Paul and Jesus experienced something very, very common, namely suffering. Remember, Jesus had three years of ministry experience. Paul himself went on three missionary journeys. Jesus endured five trials. Paul also endured five trials before Jesus suffered. Again, Paul at the end of those five trials, suffers. Luke is trying to help us make a connection between the life of Jesus and the life of Paul. And so is it any wonder that you experience those same things? So Luke is showing us in this passage what it means to suffer well. He's addressing the problem of suffering. He's addre- one, of the, one of the chief problems for many people in town, and probably for you too, is the problem with evil and suffering. Isn't it? You talk to your friends who have rejected the faith. One of the reasons they give is, look, how can God exist if all this stuff has happened to me? All this evil in the world. Paul addresses it here. And what I want to show you is Luke has a very sophisticated yet very simple way of dealing with the problem. And so if you look at your sermon outline, you'll have it there before you. There is, first of all, the mystery of the voyage. There's the demeanor in the voyage. And there's the man in the storm, the mystery of the voyage, the demeanor in the voyage, and the man in the storm. Keep your Bibles open and let's look at those three points together. First, the mystery of the voyage. You may remember several months ago, we were in Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul talks about two very different kinds of people and their view of suffering. There were the Stoics. These are the people who believe that things are fated, that they believe fated, not faded like genes, fated, like they are set. They are certainly going to happen. They're the Stoics. They believe that time is set for them. They know ex- whatever happens will happen. Their choices will not affect the outcome of those circumstances. And that suffering is just to be accepted. And on the other hand, you had people in Acts chapter 17 that Paul talks to on the Areopagus. They were called the Epicureans. Do you remember the Epicureans? 
The Epicureans are the people who believed that suffering was to be avoided at all costs, that your destiny was not fixed, and that your personal choices mattered. They could shape your future. And what's interesting when you, when you come to this text is that Paul has a vision from the Lord, doesn't he? Look down there at verse 23. It says, This very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You will make it to Rome. And earlier in Acts, Paul had received another vision to confirm that he would indeed one day finally make it to Rome. But then also you see in this passage down in verse 30, these men are trying to get out of Dodge. They're trying to leave the ship. And what does Paul say to them? Paul says to them, look, men, don't leave this ship or we won't make it to Rome. Well, which is it? He had this vision that he was going to get to Rome. And then he tells these men, don't leave the boat. Stay with the boat or we're not going to make it to Rome. We would think it'd be one or the other. Paul, Luke, the Bible, will, have, will not have the simple stoic understanding of suffering, that it's just to be embraced, just it's part of your fate. You just got to accept it. Nor will they have the Epicurean approach to suffering, meaning that, listen, the future's not fixed. There's no sovereign over it. Your choices are what determine your destiny. Paul actually has a very beautiful beautiful and biblical and yet paradoxical understanding of the nature of suffering. Because you or I would think that if Paul, who is a prophet of the Lord, were given a vision, he wouldn't be so bold as to say, friends, you're all going to make it to Rome. If he's wrong, according to the Old Testament, what's the punishment for Paul, a prophet? Any prophet that prophesies and is wrong, what happens to them? Deuteronomy 18 says that they will be killed. But yet Paul tells these men later on, don't get off the boat or we're all going to die. What I want you to see is this. Paul has a sophisticated, complex, yet very simple approach to the nature of suffering. We see these two basic approaches all the time, the Stoic approach and the Epicurean approach in our day and age. Let me give you an example. What's an example of an Epicurean approach to suffering today? Somebody who wants to avoid suffering. Have you all seen CNN in the last two weeks? One of the top stories on CNN is the story of Brittany Maynard. She was the woman who was 29 years old, newly married, developed brain cancer. She had a partial um, lobectomy. She had part of her frontal lobe removed. And then they moved from California to Oregon so that she would live in a state where it was legal for her to take a prescription from a doctor to end her life. Have y'all seen this story? Listen, Brittany Maynard's a great example of a modern-day Epicurean. Who, she looked at her example and she said, look, the problem is not that I suffer. The problem is, really, for many people in Owasso, in the area, it's not the problem that suffering and evil exist. Here's the problem why people don't, aren't impressed with the church and they don't come. It's the pointless suffering that they see in the world. 
The problem is not evil and suffering. If you can suffer and you know that by your suffering you're going to save a village, that you're going to save a child, that you're going to make some good of this world, then we don't really tend to have a problem with that. It's when we see things that are pointless, then we say, I cannot possibly believe in that kind of God. I can't possibly believe in God at all because I see the pointless suffering. The story of Brittany Maynard came across the wire on CNN because she was trying to help people recognize that she should have the right to end her life. Because for six months, she tried to think of every possible reason for her suffering. Well, maybe I wasn't a very faithful spouse. No, but she was. Therefore, it wasn't some big injustice. Or maybe it was um, my diet. No, she had a pretty normal diet. Maybe it was the environmental factors. That's what caused me to have brain cancer. They couldn't find any evidence of odd environmental factors. And listen, for Brittany Maynard, she came to the conclusion that there was no point to her suffering. And therefore, the only logical conclusion was to end her life and get out of it. Friends, sometimes people will say the syllogism, it goes like this. If God is omnipotent and all-powerful, and yet pointless suffering exists and he doesn't stop it, therefore that God cannot exist. Do you see the logic? It's very common. You hear it all the time. If God is all-powerful, if God could stop the suffering and he doesn't, and pointless suffering exists. Therefore, God must not exist. Listen, you hear this all the time in various permutations and combinations around town. And is it any wonder why people are running from the church? People who say that, I want you to recognize, it's that, it's that they understand suffering too well. What do I mean that, by that? People who say, listen, the suffering is pointless. You're, you're assuming you understand your suffering too well. What, what do you mean? Well, listen, if you, if you assume that you can know the point of your suffering and you've determined the point of your suffering is pointless, that means you must really know your suffering. But yet you claim at the same time to not believe in God. You claim that if there is an all-good, omniscient, omniscient, beautiful God, and yet pointless suffering exists, then there must be some problem with the communication between God and his people. God doesn't really care. He hasn't told me why this exists. Therefore, I don't believe in God anymore. Let me explain it to you like this. In other words, if you think that, um, if you think that, if you're mad enough at God if you're mad enough at God for what you perceive to be pointless suffering, then you've got at the same time to admit that maybe God's got a reason for it that he hasn't told you. It's kind of like some of you who, let's imagine that if you were to get a promotion that were to pay you five or ten times the money that you make, but you had to leave town. And you were to go and you were to tell your five-year-old, your five-year-old little girl, you were to say, honey, I want you to know that you're going to have to leave your friends at school. You're going to leave your school. You're going to leave your teachers. You're going to leave your church. You're going to leave your backyard, your playset. You're going to leave everything that's familiar to you, and you're going to, you're going to move. 
And the little girl, your little girl would look at you and go, that's stupid. There's no reason to move. And you were to explain to her in oh-so-eloquent terms, well, honey, listen, it's going to be better for the family. You're going to be able to have college paid for. And she would look at you and she would say, college? Who cares about college? That's a horrible reason. You know that's true, explaining this to a five-year-old. You know, trying to explain adult decisions to a five-year-old, you just have to tell them, hey, tough kid, you're coming with us. That's that. But if the intellectual distance between you and a five-year-old, if you have very good reasons for something to happen that they don't understand, if that is a big enough gap for you to make sense of it, think about the intellectual distance between you and an infinitely knowledgeable God. It's infinitely more. So when you think that you're suffering and you feel like your suffering is pointless, maybe there's a reason that God hasn't given you or that you couldn't understand. Because if you're going to be indifferent about God, if you're going to say, you know, God, let me say it like this, if you're going to be fierce about trying to protect God and yet you're going to say God couldn't possibly have a reason. You're refusing to admit the limits of your own knowledge. And here, Paul, in the midst of this shipwreck, is neither Stoic nor Epicurean. He's not saying it's just fated, therefore I'm just going to have to embrace it. Nor is he saying it's all up to us. It's all up to us. We just need to make the right decisions. No, Paul is saying, listen to us. There may be a reason that we're going through this that we do not yet understand. To say to somebody who's in the midst of suffering, listen, it's just God's will. That's, that's, too, that's too pat. That's too simple. Isn't it? Like those of you who are suffering, isn't it? Does that help you when somebody just says, hey, it's God's will that you're suffering? that tends to be more of a stoicism than a Christianity. I just can't understand why God would allow this. Listen, you cannot be mad at God for allowing suffering to exist in your life and at the same time assume you can know every reason that he's brought it into your life. You can't cut it both ways. If he's great enough to be mad at that you can't stop him, then he's great enough to have some reason that you cannot figure out. Does that make sense? The argument that pointless suffering exists in the world and therefore people reject the gospel really is a fallacious argument. Because God may have a reason that he hasn't yet told you. And if you're not willing to bow before the mystery, the paradox of suffering in this life, then you're refusing to admit the limits of your own knowledge and you bring that on yourself. A sea voyage in Greek always meant a metaphor for a life journey. And the storm always meant some kind of suffering. And we're all in the midst of storms. So I want, to be, I want you to be careful that you don't say, listen, God, I got you figured out. This is why you've caused this. You may not know. And it's okay not to know. That takes us to the second point. The demeanor in the voyage. 
Listen, we may not understand the reason behind suffering, but we do understand what will happen in your life if you receive it in a certain way. Notice that in this text that Paul admits the shipwreck. This is his fourth shipwreck, by the way. His fourth shipwreck. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 tells you he's been in three earlier ones. This is his fourth, and yet notice his demeanor. They haven't eaten for two weeks, and yet Paul is, he's full of ballast and strength and balance. He's, he's poised, he's calm. How can he be that way? One of the amazing things about Paul in this passage is that he, the ship is about to sink, and he's walking around giving people assurance. He's assuring them, and he's giving them courage. It seems so nice, but Paul is, Luke is trying to show us something that Jesus said earlier in Luke 21, that Jesus said, listen, not a hair on your head will you lose. Even when brothers and sisters, family members persecute you, you will not lose a hair on your head. That's exactly what Paul says later on. He says, listen, for I will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from any of your heads. Verse 34. And then he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them to encourage their hearts. Listen, Jesus tells us that you will be persecuted and you will suffer rejection by other people, but not a hair will fall from your head. What in the world does that mean? You're going to die, but not a hair will fall from your head. What does that mean? You're going to look good in your coffin? Jesus makes this astonishing statement. He wants, he wants you to know that you have assurance. He's saying that even though you're going to be persecuted, even though you're going to go through suffering, not a single hair will perish from your head, just like Mike led us earlier in the Heidelberg Catechism in the first question. Jesus means that at the same time, he has a loving, gracious plan for the details of your life. And that plan is to bring you peace and greatness and salvation in him. And that will entail suffering because it's through the patient endurance that you will obtain the salvation of your souls, Jesus says in Luke 21. God has got a detailed plan to bring greatness and love and peace into your life. Paul knows this. He's standing on a ship with 275 other people. And he is the one that's calm amidst everybody else freaking out. Can you see the picture? How can he be like that? Because he's, he knows, he knows that he's loved and he's not rejected. That his God has not cast him off. Because not a hair will fall from his head except with the permission of his Savior who loves him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11 that three times he was flogged, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked. This is his fourth shipwreck, and yet he says he is achieving through this suffering an eternal weight of glory, of weightiness, of ballast, of strength amidst the persecution. Don't you want that? Don't you want, in the midst of all the stuff that happens in your life that just seems to make no sense, don't you want to be able to have a kind of calm and resonance about you like Paul had, like Jesus seemed to have the night before he died? Don't you want that? Listen, I want that. But Paul says, yet I will boast in 2 Corinthians 11, I will boast all the more greatly in the eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. 
You're going to suffer, but it's light and momentary. You're going to go through trials, but I'm telling you, it will produce the salvation of your soul. What's going on here? Listen, suffering can ruin your life. Like suffering can make you, can make you bitter. It can make you um, angry. And suffering can ruin your life, can't it? It can be hard. And every single one of us could go around this room and you could talk about experiences in your life where you've suffered. It can ruin your life. But no suffering will absolutely ruin your life. Because you know people who have suffered and they've endured through the suffering. There's a weight about them, isn't there? There's a glory about them. There's a sense of ballast, of strength, of resonance about them. But you meet people who have never gone through suffering, who never have had a struggle in their life at all. They're often very shallow. They're often swayed by their circumstances. And they're often extremely fearful of other people. Suffering can possibly ruin your life. It can. Like Brittany Maynard. But no suffering will absolutely ruin your life. Do you hear me? Does that make sense? And Luke is trying to show you in Acts 27, he's being extremely detailed. It's one of the most detailed accounts of a sea voyage, not only in the Bible, but in all of classic literature. Because he's trying to show you that suffering is a part of the deal. And you may not understand why it's happening. Don't give yourself so much credit to assume that you must and you have to know exactly why it's happening. God may not tell you the reason. That doesn't mean there's not one. And in the midst of that suffering, your demeanor and your sense of ballast and your glory and your weight, it can be there. It can be yours. This can be your demeanor. You can be like Paul. This is not pie in the the sky stuff. Listen, there's another woman, not Brittany Maynard. There's another woman who also has cancer. Do you know what her name is? Her name is Kara Tippetts. She's 36. She's a mother of four children. And she wrote a letter to Brittany Maynard before Brittany took her life on November the 1st. And this is what she had to say to her. This morning I read your story, Brittany. With a heavy heart, I left my home after reading it, and I headed for my oncologist. I, too, am dying. Tonight, as I sat on my bed of my young daughter, we prayed for you, and I wondered over the impossibility of understanding that one day the story of my young daughter will be made beautiful in her living because she witnessed my dying. Listen, this is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is extremely practical. Kara Tippetts is a mother of four, 36 years old, has everything before her, and yet she has a completely different perspective about her suffering. She has weight about her. She has a sense of glory about her. She doesn't understand why she has brain cancer. The exact same situation in two very different ladies in the same country, the same life stage. Even though the one who has four children who has more reason to despair is the one who's got a sense of weight about her. Don't you want that? Man, I do. And here Paul is a person of weight. 
He's a person of ballast. He's a person of glory. Suffering can ruin your life, but no suffering will absolutely do you in. And what's it take to make you someone like Paul? What's it take to make, have a demeanor like Paul? How do you receive this kind of suffering in a way that actually allows you to be able to stand fast? That takes us to the third point, the man in the storm. The most interesting verse in all of this passage to me is verse 23. Look, lower your eyes and look at it with me if you have a Bible open. In Greek, it says, there stood before me. From God, whose I am and who I worship, a messenger. There stood before me, as in the emphatic position in Greek. There someone stood with me, before me in the midst of the storm. He was there with me, a messenger. And Paul says, not the God who might exist, not the God of the Epicureans who may, he may be in control. It says, the God to whom I belong. How does he know that? Paul doesn't wonder if he belongs to God. He knows that he does. How can he have that kind of confidence, that kind of assurance? The majority of people who feel suffering, they feel utterly rejected and cast off. But Paul, in the midst of his suffering here, he feels incredibly loved. The God whose I am. Not the God whose I hope to be someday, but the God whose I am now. He is God's now in the suffering. In other words, he's being loved. Beautiful. He's being loved into the person that God desires him to be. He must because he's God's. And he doesn't wonder if he is. He knows that he is. That's confidence. Do you know what he has? Like, he doesn't have a reason to argue why evil and suffering in the world is not a legitimate reason to reject the gospel and to never show up at church again. That's, the reason that I gave you at the very beginning is actually not what you really need. Do you know what Paul has that you need? The reason is, you, you do not need a reason to explain why you're suffering. That's not what you need because you may not ever get that reason. And if you did, you'd be discontent with it. What you really need is what Paul has. He has a man in the storm. He has someone suffering with him. He has a presence in the storm. What you need is not a reason. You need a presence. When, when I had a high school football coach, his name was Tom Tate, and we all left to go to college. Tom was a great coach. He was a good, he knew football very, very well. And one day, he, we got the news that Tom had tragically died on his farm. He had been killed when he was trying to rescue one of his livestock. And so we all came back to our hometown. And the night before the funeral, we sat around the campfire and we were telling stories about Coach Tom. And what, was, what was interesting to me and what I remember about that experience was Tom taught us a lot about football and how to run a 4-3 defense. But nobody talked about how Tom taught them about football. They told stories about how Tom waited, Coach Tom waited with them all night in the hospital the day they broke their arm. And about how Coach Tom taught them how to swim. And they told stories about how when their dad left, Coach Tom stepped in and was a father figure for them. Every story they told about Coach Tom, this great football coach, was about how he was with them, how he was present with them in the midst of their storms. 
As Christians, we have the audacity to say, indeed, we are the only people who can say this about our faith, that God is with us amidst those storms. That his presence with us is not a sign that he's rejected us. It's a sign that he loves us, that he's loving us beautiful. You may not know why you're without work. You may not know why you're going through the trials you're going in. But a reason is not what you need. You need the presence of the one who's in the storm with you. And he's there. And how do you know he's there? Not just because Acts 27 tells you that there was a man that told Paul, I'm with you. You know he was there because we have a God who knows exactly what it's like to suffer. You know he's there, even though you may not have a reason for your suffering. You know he understands what it's like because you've got Jesus on the cross. It's not enough to say, friends, well, God must have a reason. It's just God's will. That's not enough. What you need is the presence of the one who's in the storm with you. Many people reject Christianity because they think that they do not understand why evil and suffering exists. And I've argued that even if you had the right reason, you would still reject it because you're unable to admit the limits of your own knowledge. God is not indifferent to your suffering. He meets you in it. And how do you know that? Because you've got God who has been rejected who has been shipwrecked, if you will, who went to the cross for you and for me so that we might have hope amidst our suffering. It's the man in the storm. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11 that just as Jonah was in the belly of the well, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days because someone greater than Jonah is here. And Jonah said in the midst of the storm, you throw me overboard, you cast me off, and you sacrifice me, and the ship will be saved. And Jesus said, you throw me overboard, you cast me off, and in my suffering you will be saved. And every single one of you at Trinity on November the 9th, 2014, will know that I am with you, and I love you, and I have not cast you off. He is loving you beautiful. He wants to give you a kind of ballast and strength and endurance through suffering. That's how you obtain the the salvation of your souls. Kara Tippetts wrote this open letter to Brittany Maynard, and the letter she writes is a letter to all of us. This This is how she moves toward the end of her letter. Knowing Jesus, knowing that he understands my hard goodbye, that he walks with me in my dying. My heart longs for you to know him in your dying because in his dying, he protected your living. You have been told a lie, a horrible lie that your dying will not be beautiful, that the suffering will be too great. For everyone living, knowing death is imminent, faces the same question. Who is this Jesus and what does he have to do with my dying? Please, she says, Brittany, do not take that pill before you ask yourself that question. I get to partner with my doctor in my dying, and it's going to be beautiful and painful for us all. 
But hear me, it is not a mistake because beauty himself will meet me there at that last breath. And you know that the title of Kara Tippett's blog, Who Can Be Enduring This Incredible Bout with Brain Cancer? The title of her blog is Mundane Faithfulness. This is a picture. This is a picture of her. Timothy, I think there's a picture you can show. This is a picture of her blog. Mundane faithfulness, because it's named after Martin Luther, who said, what will you do in the mundane days of faithfulness? Hmm? We're planting a church in the city of Owasso, Oklahoma, because we believe that Jesus cares about the mundane of our life. And he's called us all to live in the midst of the mundane things, to be faithful, because he himself is faithful to us. One of these days... I pray it's a long time for now. We're going to gather for your funeral because all of us are dying. And I don't look forward to the day I get to do your funeral. But I want to be able to say at your funeral, they were faithful in the mundane. They believed, they trusted that even their suffering in their last days was making them beautiful. There's a paradox in our life. We don't always understand the mystery of suffering. It's a mystery of the voyage. But you can have a demeanor in the midst of the voyage that gives you ballast and strength and confidence and assurance of his love. And you can have that because there is a man who is with you in the storm. Don't you want that? It's available to you. Believe it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us in the midst of of long journeys at sea. And Lord, we, we, wonder, um, we wonder why we're going through circumstances that we are, but we, we don't always know why, but we know that you're with us. And we know that the thing that we need the most is your presence. And so, Lord, help us to lay our reasons down and to look to you, the man in the midst of the storm. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you care. Thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.